dear Lord, thank you for Caleb. Thank you for um, the gift that you've given him. Um, thank you that um, he has a relationship with you, God, and um, he loves you, Lord. Thank you for the work that he's put into this sermon. Um, our Lord, I pray that you'll be with him and speak through him. In your name, amen. Thank you so much, Don. That really, that, that really touched me. I can't speak on everyone, but that really touched me. It was a really comforting story to hear. Um, to hear how God's, you know, using us when we're, you know, just willing to be used. Um, our first passage tonight is going to be from Amos 5, if you guys would like to turn with it um, to me. And we're going to start reading in verse 21. Amos 5, verse 21 says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. It's quite clear from this passage that us believers cannot just simply worship God however we feel like. We cannot simply sing the right lyrics and God will enjoy our fragrant offering. So taking a fully practical side of worship in this sermon would likely lead us away from the truths in the word of God, endangering us of being just like the Israelites in this text, quick to act out of our tradition rather than the genuine reverence of our hearts. To begin with what worship is, let's read John 4 together. And my apologies for the biblical gymnastics. Um, And let us pick John 4 up in verse 19. Jesus has just asked for water from a Samaritan woman and revealed himself to know about her life only in a way God could reveal to someone. So in John 4 verse 19, it says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The point of this text was to emphasize a biblical foundation that worship for us today can be wherever we are. It is not limited to our Sunday congregational gathering or even the things that we do. This section of John 4 is saying that because of Christ's coming sacrifice and fulfillment of the law, the separation between Jews and Gentiles would no longer be necessary. Jesus is saying that the sacraments and the traditions and the temple are not the specific way that we are limited limited to worship our God. And any Gentile who is now in Christ is now branched and grafted into God's people as it affirms in Romans 11. Worship now becomes a matter of our hearts in position towards the glory of God, not the external actions or practices that we follow. What good news this is that Christ came to bring free grace to all the nations of the earth for acceptance of him as our savior and dedication completely to him. We see in verse 24 that we now worship in spirit, meaning the spirit within us. 
the Spirit working to bear fruit in the believer's lives for Christ Jesus, and we worship in truth based on God's scriptures. To offer worship that is holy before our God, truth must override everything else as we cannot prefer to worship however we please. But having true theology of worship isn't only important because God takes wrong worship seriously, as we read before in Amos 5, but also because biblically informed worship should lead us to a deeper intimacy with God. Because the more we know about God, the more we should be in awe towards him. The late R.C. Sproul says, our worship must be informed at every point by the word of God as we seek God's own instructions for worship that is pleasing to him. So looking into the biblical view of worship, we see that there are three primary words that translate into our word worship. The first one is a Greek word called proskuneo, which is translated into to bow down or to reverence. One specific way we see this bowing down is the way we give God a very high view and a condescending opinion of self. Reverence begins with the fear of the Lord and is something we saw the Israelites often forget whenever the Lord was unhappy with the worship that they offered. The second word we see translated as sebumai, which means to fear God. One example of wrong fear of God in the Bible is in Genesis with Adam. Adam hid from God because of the sin. And so we can see that sinful fear of God drives us away from him rather than closer to him. The fear of God is not one of terror, but more so fear of his ultimate authority and tremendous power over this world and every living thing. A new perspective I heard, which was challenging to me this week, was that the fear of God is more of a communication of the intensity and the obsession that we have in our happiness found in God. And the final word used for our word worship in the Bible is the Greek word latreo, which means to serve. Latreo in the Old Testament means to be loyal to him, and for us it can also mean how we choose to serve and submit to him. We must rekindle our hearts to remind ourselves that worship is a privilege. It's not something that we get just have to just do out of tradition and kind of, you know, do just because our brothers and our family and the people before us have done it. But it should be something that should be a delight to us. God does not need our worship and he does not need our praises. In A.W. Tozer's book called The Knowledge of the Holy, he says of worship, if every man on earth became blind, it would not diminish the glory of the sun and the moon and the stars. And if every person on earth turned atheist, it would not diminish the glory of God. So how do we worship? The Apostle Paul gives us a beautiful picture in Romans 12, where we will turn to in a few moments. But I'd just firstly like us to reflect deeply into these two verses where it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We see firstly that we choose to worship because of God's kindness towards us. Before we read into Romans 12, I'd just like us to turn together to Psalm 63. King David was known for being an avid worshiper and a man after God's own heart. And in Psalm 63, we read, O God, you are my God. I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, 
as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast, and my mouth praises you with joyful lips. We see here David being obsessed with the love of God. David's response to God's love was one of gratitude and worship. Every time I read this verse, it brings me both conviction, but also comfort. Because I am always challenged, is God's steadfast love to me better than my own life? You see, I really grapple with Psalm 63 because I wonder if maybe the church is struggling to see the dependency we have for God and the hunger we should have for him. Because I know that for me, I do. I know that I can easily get caught up in fighting sin and going about my day with my own strength and not clinging to the Lord with every single breath I have. But then I compare myself to David. He was a formidable man when read throughout 1 Samuel. But yet we read at the start of Psalm 63 about a man who isn't prideful or even slightly relying on his own might. We read about a man starving, desperate, and hungry for God despite all that he had accomplished because he knew the weight of his sin and the need for his saviour. When you get to the end of a run at night, and now you're probably wondering where this is going, but there is that thirst that only water can fill. That first sip is so refreshing, and it brings such satisfaction and comfort to me. When I was preparing this sermon, I felt God bringing me this conviction every time I sat down to write, and I want us to ask ourselves this question in our hearts. Are we satisfied with God's steadfast love in the same way God satisfied the first that David had? that David would rather fall down right then and there than to be separated from the steadfast love of God? Does God's forgiveness for our sins bring such a refreshment and comfort to us comparable to water after that long, long run? Or like the Israelites, have we just placed our desires and joy in the things of this world like idols? Or even just if our faith is going well and life is just going by? Because I'll be the first person in this room to put my hand up and say that I can find it easy to get caught up in my life and to not be so fully satisfied and dependent on God's great love. I'm not disregarding holiness and worship at all and following God's law. But I think that God is saying his first desire throughout his word for worship is that his love and grace for us should be our comfort, our strength, and what leads us into genuine worship. Because when I am living each day in a way that is most satisfied in God, I cannot help but worship him. Like the Pharisees offering their perfect worship according to the law, but yet Jesus delighted in the woman who cleaned his feet with her tears in Luke 7 because she was so satisfied with him that Jesus had become her joy, her hope, and her friend. So if we could all turn now to the passage of Romans 12, we're just going to read for verse 1 and 2. And we see at the beginning of verse 1, where Paul says, in view of God's mercy. In view means to keep in perspective. Before we even choose to consciously worship God, we remind our hearts with the perspective of his grace over us. 
the graciousness of a God that he promises to never turn away a repentant heart. God's attributes of his grace should lead us into a place of majesty towards him and mellow our hearts towards laying down our own desires and bring us to a place of worship and awe. The manner of our worship is shown by to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, presenting everything about us in a way that honors him, how our hearts are softened to his word, how our minds are in awe of him, and how our thoughts bring glory to him. How what we do with our bodies brings gratitude and worship towards him in every single moment. To be a holy sacrifice, as it says in the text, showing us that being separate to the world because of Christ working in us is true worship to God. Being transformed by the renewing of your mind shows us that we need to refresh our minds daily as we are hit every day by the world's agendas and views. And if we do not consciously defend ourselves with the armor of God in Ephesians 6, we will be deceived by these things. So we must wash ourselves daily in the word and spend time intentionally letting God reveal and convict us of ungodly desires and attitudes. We must worship him with clean minds, not emotions. This is an important point because it leads us to the fact that worship is not about an experiment, experience. Don't get me wrong. I think that emotion can be such a powerful motivation for us to worship God. Um, and to worship God in church, but unless our minds are saturated in the truths of Scripture and focus on the unchanging character of God, then our emotions will be shallow, and we will just cause it will just cause us to sway. To see the strength of truth, we can look at a man like Job, who, when everything in his life seemed to be failing, he still chose to worship God out of both reasoning and submission to the Lord. So, as I mentioned at the start. I really felt the Lord leading me to try and seek his wisdom on how we as a church can apply the principles of worship into our lives and to try and make this practical. One of the few books I try to read every year is a book called Disciplines of a Godly Man by Kent Hughes. And quite a few of these practical tips from his chapter on worship pierced me, and that started me to take my worship very seriously. My first practical thought is that Sunday worship begins on Saturday night. Whether that means laying out all your clothes out the night before church, or whether that means going to bed at a reasonable hour so that you can have a sharp mind throughout the service. I think prayer towards the service for the week is also so powerful because you can get to Monday night and be praying for the sermon and God may build this deep hunger in you to hear the word on Sunday. And when you get into the church on Sunday, there is this hunger that can only be satisfied by God through the fellowship of believers, and through the preaching of the word. Taking the service seriously with the proskuneo reference um, in in the heart of why we should begin preparing our hearts and minds for Sunday's gatherings. My second practical tip is to come with a heart of expectancy to church worship. There is something special to be able to gather amongst each other with our own brothers and sisters and sing to our holy God. If we come with that expectancy each week and excitement to sing, we will be in a place where we delight in praising our God as a body. Martin Luther said of worship, at home in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. My next practical thought is about reminding ourselves of the seriousness of church. 
Church is about equipping the bride of Christ to go out with the spirit living within us in order to go into the world and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. To be able to go to work with the joy and delight that the God who in Matthew 10 says holds the keys to our own salvation, and yet he calls us his bride whom he loves and cherishes. A really cool statement I heard, quote from Annie Dillard says, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake some, some day and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we may never return. We must also remember, though, that there, we are not to fear God as children in a fearful way that does not honor him as our good father. But we must have that reverence of who he is, the holy God that we worship, who is jealous after his own name. When we are worshiping in the Sunday service, it is very easy to let our mind wander. I read about a common story this week about a little boy who fought the gospel lyric, gladly the cross I'd bear, was a song about a bear with crossed eyes. We must recognize every moment in church that we are singing to God. Not to sing with the congregation and think about how nice it all sounds, but to close your eyes or to read the lyrics on the screen in a way that you are so focused on the God of your worship. And what a beautiful thought it is to think about each church on Sunday singing to the same God as us. How on Sunday morning, God is sitting on his mighty throne inhabiting our praises. Sometimes if I feel my mind um, wandering, I will close my eyes and I'll stop singing. And I will just think about the person this whole service is dedicated for. I will dwell on that old rugged cross where my Savior was beaten and killed for me to, have worship, to be able to worship him today. What a wonderful Savior and Holy God we have. Amen. Another thing is to pray during the week about Sunday's sermon. Pray specifically about things which impacted you and that you would be able to put that practically into your day-to-day -day life. But also pray to God for wisdom and understanding the things you don't understand. This way, during the week, you can actually understand more after the sermon than you did during it. Another practical thing is to intentionally abide in Christ when things come into our lives. These last few weeks have been particularly hard with an unfulfilled desire for me that I believe the Lord will one day bless. But when I feel down and sorrowful, I run to my room and I pick up my guitar and I worship our holy God. Because it reminds me that as good of a father he is and as gracious as he is to desire to bless his own children's desires, I am ultimately here to bless his name, to bring him glory at the cost of my own comfort, to bring him glory at the cost of myself. And the joy that I've left my room this week after singing praises to God is, <laughs> well, for others it may be reading the word or listening to a sermon when things hit us. I wanted to just read um, what the pastor, Kent Hughes, read, read in um, the book I was reading before about going to church. Not to convict us, to say we don't come with the right heart each week, 
But I just wanted to suggest that some of these things could help you to have more reverence in worship or even on the Sunday morning gathering. He says, on Saturday, I have asked Christ to make me sensitive tomorrow to the needs of people in the body who are hurting. I have solved the Sunday clothes hassle by making sure that I will wear his ready today. I've spent time in confession, so all will be right between myself and my Lord when we meet tomorrow. I've decided to get up early, so I'll be refreshed and ready for church tomorrow. I've planned on sustaining the light of this time with Christ and his people by guarding against Sunday afternoon infringements. And on Sunday, I've gotten up in plenty of time so that I will not feel rushed. I have programmed my morning so I will not just arrive at church on time or late, but rather get there early. I have eaten a good breakfast so an empty stomach will not detract my worship. I have my Bible in hand plus a pen and paper for taking notes. And I have left for church with a great sense of expectancy because I know Christ will be there. My final point is that we can fall so short in our worship. In fact, I think David Platt is right about we can never offer God worship that is worthy of his great name. Isaiah 64, 6 says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And this is why we must worship with joy, because we can never offer worship that is fitting enough to our God's name. But yet he delights it. He is owed it by every being because of his great grace and not smiting us where we stand in our sin, but rather him giving us joy and comfort in these times and his very own son to go on the cross for us. So let us every week come before him with a heart of joy. The amazing thing is whether we worship God the way he desires or if we fall short, if we are in Christ Jesus, he forgives our sins against him. But I would hate to see a church or someone worshiping God in an unbiblical way throughout their week, not as in regards to lighting or instrumental choices, but rather the hearts behind them. Because these people may very well miss out on the favor of God we, say, we see Israel live under whenever they cling to God and honor his name. But praise God for his grace, as it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins before him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I wanted to finish today by reading a passage from Revelation 5, if we, if we could all turn to it, and I hope that it penetrates deep into our hearts. We'll pick up from Revelation 5, um, verse 9, where it says, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory 
and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth and on the sea, and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. So Hokanui and beloved visitors, let us be no different to those elders and creatures. Amen. Amen.